Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about the 5.1 SRD being released in four new languages. We're going to take a look at the results from the Shadow Dark RPG Game Jam. We're going to look at some of the Pathfinder 2 Core Remaster previews that went out this past week. A fellow YouTuber, Map Crow, did a video that covered some elements of lazy dm work that i've done our big topic today is going to be about moving things forward a particular slice of the larger topic of how we pace our games and we're going to cover more questions from the july 2023 patreon q a all today on the lazy rpg talk show i'm mike shea your pal from sly flourish here to talk about all things in role-playing games this show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, and a whole lot more. If you want to help me put on shows like this, please consider becoming a patron. You can find a link to that in the show notes below. So ever since the OGL fiasco of earlier this year, there's always been this question. One of the things that Wizards of the Coast has been trying to do is to once again reestablish themselves as good stewards of the D&D brand. This past week, they have made a major move in that direction. Wizards of the Coast has released the 5.1 SRD. This is the system reference document for 5th edition, which is basically the underlying core rules for all of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition. They have released the 5.1 SRD in the Creative Commons in four languages on top of English. So French, Italian, German, and Spanish. They went through the effort to, re to they call this localization. Localization is putting it in different languages. And it means that now you can go download a French version of the 5.1 SRD, which is under a Creative Commons license. It's the, the Creative Commons license is included as part of the SRD, which means that a publisher in one of these countries that wants to publish fifth edition compatible rules, fifth edition compatible material has 400, more than 400 pages worth of material that they can use all by just including a single line that references back to the original, to the original source. This is to me as the, as big a deal as releasing or as close to as big a deal as releasing the 5.1 SRD in the creative commons itself. This is a huge deal. What this means is that now five, this game can exist in five different languages without having to go through the trouble of translation because the original one was available in English. And because it allows for derivative works, it means that they could have, it could have been translated, but translating 500 pages of materials, incredibly costly. It's often well outside of the capabilities of any independent publisher that wants to publish in, in one of these languages. So them going through the effort, Wizards of the Coast going through the effort to translate this into five, into four additional languages on top of English is a tremendous expense. And that expense directly goes to the benefit of people who not only want to have that rule set in their language, but also publishers who want to be able to publish 5e material in those languages. It's a really good step forward. I think that this is a strong, it's a strong indication because again, we're, we're now six months past the OGL thing. It would certainly be possible for Wizards of the Coast to just kind of step back and say, well, we're just going to keep going and making books and Planescape. Don't forget about Planescape and Bigby's and kind of forget about this stuff. And they haven't been, they've been doing stuff. I think this deserves a lot of credit. And I've seen people on definitely on different forums who are still like, well, I don't care. I still don't trust them. I also had discussions about people who are still not convinced that one day wizards won't try to take this back. I can't see how they would. It, it, we, the, the, the argument that was brought up, the argument that I have heard is we all thought the OGL was secure and it wasn't. And now we think this is secure. What's to tell us that this is? Well, the difference is that we would have trillion dollar companies on our side if Wizards of the Coast decided, well, they would be, we would be fighting alongside trillion dollar companies. If Wizards decided that someday they wanted to bring this back, I think it is very safe to say they are not going to bother to try to fight to bring back the 5.1 rules under their control after releasing it under a Creative Commons license. They're, by their own words, stated in many different places, they believe it is it is irrevocable. They cannot pull back the 5.1 SRD. And not only that, but they are putting it out in these other languages. Now, to me, there are two other good signs and indicators that we want to be keeping our eye out for. We, Wizards has said they're going to do this. 
because they said they can, they're going to do it, I think this is something that we can hold them to and that we should hold them to because I think it definitely is a big benefit to the community overall. One is releasing the 3.5 SRD under Creative Commons. There is a system reference document that is tied to the original third edition rules that contain different kinds of stuff than the fifth edition rules did. And they said that they were going to release that under a Creative Commons license as well. They expected to be able to do it before the end of the year. So let's keep an eye out and see if they do. And then the next big one is going to be later this later next year and it's going to be it's going to be a little ways away and that's why i'm a little worried about it because it's pretty far away and it's like it could be far enough away that maybe like oh well we've just been really busy and we haven't been able to do it and that is releasing the updated the 2024 updated rules under a creative commons license not all of them but whatever you know basically the equivalent of what the existing 5.1 srd has only updated with whatever changes and updates they're making as part of the 2024 revision that that makes its way into creative commons license so why does this matter to gms i, I talk about this and every so often i get people they're like man you're still hanging on to this thing and all you're talking about is the business of DD. the reason why it matters is it matters to the the, the quality of the material that you're going to be able to buy in a couple of years for your games a lot of products like products from cobalt press the products that we see from ghostfire gaming third-party products that we're seeing other fifth edition products that we're seeing we're seeing tremendous really really awesome products that are coming out there that are the kind of thing wizards of the coast alone would not produce again we talked about they wouldn't produce a book like tolis they probably wouldn't produce a book like drakenheim there's some you know the monstrous menagerie you know level up advanced 5e all of these kinds of things that they would not produce themselves and we want that kind of stuff we want a really rich ecosystem for lots of different we being gms want a very rich ecosystem so that we can get a lot of different products that could be very specialized for very specific kinds of play for very specific kinds of campaigns very different design ideas that wizards wouldn't do on their own but they can do because of this material being released under an open license so those to me are kind of big steps that we should be looking for when we're looking at is wizards acting as a good steward of DD? are they acting as good partners in this industry the fact that they released the 5.1 srd under creative commons was a huge one the fact that they went through the, the effort to translate it to french italian german and spanish is another really big effort a third one would be the release of the 5.1 of the release of the 3.5 srd in a creative commons and then when we see the 2024 rules update in creative commons as well those would show that they really are trying to help the overall community not just benefiting wizards of the coast the the thing to consider with this which you can kind of sit back and think about is it takes effort for them to do this it is not free it is not just the kind of thing where they can turn a switch and it goes out they have to spend money in many cases a lot of money if you think about like what it takes is what it's going to take particularly so what it take took to do these translations is not is not cheap but also to take the 2024 rules update and make that a creative commons document it means somebody has to take on that job somebody has to go through that amount of work somebody's being paid a salary at hasbro to go through and do that work and they could be doing other work at wizards instead of that that would be according to the the powers that be driving more profit directly to wizards of the coast and instead they're being assigned to this kind of job and they're putting it out that's not insignificant so we shouldn't pretend that like oh this is complete you know doesn't cost them anything and it means everything to us it costs them money to do this kind of support and i i think that we want to we want to remember that so i think this is outstanding i was really really happy to see this I had forgotten that they said that this is something that they were going to do and then they did it and it's great. Now, of course, it's like, what about other languages? I heard somebody bring up, hey, what about Japanese? Wouldn't it be great to see it in Japanese? It would. It would be very great to see it in Japanese. We'll have to see. Well, you know, again, the cost of these things are not are not zero. So it takes effort. I hope that they put it out in other languages. I think that there are definitely other countries, particularly one, one area where I think that there's a, a big sort of gap is... There are countries in the world, India comes to mind. This came up during the summit that in India, the income level of people in India is like one tenth of the income level of European and North American countries. So being able to put it out in languages that can be read in India, I'm not Pashto and Urdu, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an international expert in exactly what languages should be the right ones to address these, to address these countries, but putting it into countries where there's that massive level of income disparity means that those countries can then develop products that are priced at the point where they can, they can afford it. Cause right now somebody brought up that like a player's handbook, buying a player's handbook in India is one tenth of the gross salary of an employee 
It's essentially like more than a month's salary to buy a single player's handbook. So that's when we're like putting out the SRD in that in in putting out the system resource document in that language could reduce the costs for people to be able to make products there, which means reduce the cost for players to be able to play there, which is talking about expanding the game globally. And we think about that and like, well, that's just Wizards wanting to expand it globally. But no, we want the game to be global. We want everybody to be able to play this game, right? We GM, we, GMs are, should not just be from Europe or North America. They should be from all over the world. So that I think is something that, that I, I hope that they, 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 they take a look at how to do localized versions of this in countries where the income level is significantly less than what we're used to in North American countries or European countries. Anyway, I think this is an outstanding deal. I think it's a really big deal, and I'm I'm that's why it's the the keynote on this show. So Shadow Dark RPG. I just had the opportunity to play Shadow Dark for the first time this past week. I really enjoyed it. And one of the things that was going on during this was a thing called the Shadow Dark RPG Game Jam over on Itch. So a whole bunch of people, there were 116 entries for independent Shadow Dark products that were released. They were scored. They were judged. They had uh, a bunch of people that kind of voted on them. And there's a great big list of these now in a rank order. You can go to the Itch.io webpage for it. You can find it in the show notes below. And you can see a whole bunch of different products you know short small independent products they're all pay what you want but give them give them give them some 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 dollars if you find yourself looking at it and you say yeah this is really cool i want it go ahead and throw the money their way and now, now the nice thing is that they are in an order for people who have voted for these things and then there was also this was all kind of hosted baron de rop from dungeon masterpiece was kind of spearheading this and he actually had yesterday as of this recording the saturday the you know, saturday the, the 29th did a final look where they also had sort of a judges panel of people to vote on which ones won and the one that won overall was called the tragic curse of grim hell fort here is the pdf of the winner of the shadow dark rpg game jam the tragic curse of Grimhill Fort. It is a ruined exploration adventure first level, which means it's very accessible, very straightforward. I really love it. I love the cover. It's got this like pulpy kind of torn covers, really cool graphic design, very well put together, beautiful map, you know, colored segments to show the different ways that you can get in. I love that the map has sort of a few different ways that you could break into this thing. Do you go in through the wall, you know, climb the wall vines to get up top? Do you go in through the main entrance? Do you go through the caves below? You know, multiple entrances. I love that sort of thing. Straightforward descriptions of the things they've they they the, the things that the characters will find going through here bandits and everything else really straightforward eight page adventure really well laid out looks really cool an an excellent you know excellent piece of work and you know six pages if you include the cover so looks really really neat and i think i think that you know i haven't looked through all of the other hundred hundred some but if you want to dig in there's a whole bunch there this is just one example but i think like one of the reasons why this one stands out is a it's really well put together and b it fits very much into the kind of adventure you would expect for shadow dark you will be able to find links for all of this including for including for the tragic curse of grim hill fort great name by the way in the show notes below Pathfinder 2, Paizo released a remaster preview of the core remaster preview for Pathfinder 2. So Paizo, after again, you know, I mean, the OGL was a big deal. I don't know how not to talk about it because it was like a great big deal. I know people are just like, oh, just move on. Like, we don't need to constantly talk about this. And I agree. Like, we just want to play games. I get it. But the, this was a major thing that happened in the industry and has changed a whole, I think it's changed the whole industry forever, frankly. And we, I mean, we're seeing this. We're seeing like the Shadow Dark, the popularity of Shadow Dark. I think a lot of that came from people that were kind of wanted to try like what was the old school way and supporting independent publishers and everything like that. But one of them is Paizo. So Paizo said they really wanted to take Pathfinder 2 and they wanted to break it away from their connection to the 3.5 SRD, which again has not been released under a Creative Commons license. That's the one Pathfinder uses. Pathfinder, Pathfinder 2 use the 3.5 system reference document not the 5e system reference document as their base but they wanted to break away from that they worked with their lawyers azora law they worked with their designers and they have been refreshing pathfinder 2 to be a much more standalone game that has its own license known as orc that doesn't have any connection whatsoever to the original drives of dungeons and dragons and they talk about in this preview i think that it's coming out later this year 
I'm pretty sure that they think the core remaster books are coming out later this year. They have a 19 page preview that talks about some of the changes that exist in this game. I gave it a flip through. So a, I am not, I, I don't play Pathfinder. I, I, I've, I've played it a couple of times, but I'm not in the inner workings of exactly how Pathfinder works, the mechanics behind how Pathfinder works and stuff like that. So what you're getting from me is kind of like an outsider peering in on the kinds of changes that they made. It seems like those changes were made for a few reasons. One was to get, it was an opportunity to kind of clarify rules or focus on certain things. One of the was to kind of break away from things that were clearly sort of like D&D-ish sort of stuff and make their own sort of version of it. And then, you know, other other little odds and ends in, in how things work. And some of them, like, I, I don't really understand the what the impact of these changes are necessarily going to be because I don't play it very regularly. So that a lot of different things. Some I, I asked in my in the in the Sly Flourish Discord server, I like what when you read it, what were some of the big things that you noticed, particularly for the people that do play Pathfinder, what were some of the things that were big changes? And it brought up the fact that there is that they removed alignment, which is pretty interesting. They removed spell schools and instead they're just part of the subclasses that you pick. So there are things like illusion is still a trait that follows specific things, but generally speaking, the schools themselves are gone. Instead they have sort of like wizards have no spell schools but they still have a curriculum which is essentially i think like a subclass and the way that you choose what line of wizardry you're going to follow says what spells that you're going to have i guess the idea is that the, the basic list of spell schools of abjuration conjuration divination enchantment evocation necromancy and transmutation that those that those traits were probably too closely tied to the original 3.5 version of the game and they decided that they want to break away from it. Which, you know, I think that makes sense because like spell schools are kind of a weird sub thing. Like you got your list of spells that you pick. I guess there are a way to select spells. I don't know. Again, it's one of those things where like, I'm not sure that I understand exactly how it works. So they, uh, the, one of the things, so they attribute modifiers. We were moving ability scores and changed ability modifiers to attribute modifiers to make them more obvious. That is a big one. And this is one where... I've had a strong opinion about this for a long time. In my opinion, only one game on the planet needs to have ability scores, and that's pure Dungeons and Dragons. I think anybody else that is making a an RPG doesn't you need to use ability scores because almost always the ability scores instead of modifier just pick the modifier. I've seen games where you still roll like you're rolling a score, but in the end you only select your modifier and you put it in. But the modifier is really the only thing that matters. So a lot of times when I see games that kind of make that leap forward, they really only make they only use modifiers. It looks like Pathfinder is going to move to a modifier only system, which I think makes a lot of sense. That 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 that's definitely a path. Uh, a path that I would see. There's a lot of like this rela- replaced concepts list. And some of this, I think, is again, them defining Pathfinder 2 as its own system, independent of Dungeons and Dragons, and other ones where I think that they they wanted to just make changes to the game themselves, or they wanted to avoid any kind of licensing thing. So instead of the Abyss, they have the Outer Rifts, Aquan, Stalassic, Orin is Susurin. That's interesting. This one caught my eye, the City of Brass. is Now Medina's, M- M- Medina's Moody, Mudai. And that's interesting because like City of Brass is from Arabian Nights. Like it's really old. Like you don't have to worry about using. So that's one where I like, I don't think it's necessarily because they'd get in any kind of trouble by having the City of Brass. Although the City of Brass is one of those terms that was highlighted in the OGL as a term that you couldn't use or something like that. There was a specific phrasing that you couldn't use. So I thought that was interesting. But again, this is one where they're kind of defining their own world as separate from the city brass. And that seems perfectly fine to me. So lots of different ones where they're kind of switching from one term to another. That all that all makes sense. Again, kind of defining defining their own game separate from any other game that exists. Let's see. They removed the ability scores from cantrips. They changed how grab works for monsters. They renamed opportunity attack. That's kind of interesting. So a bunch of different things that they've that they've that they've changed. And really, when I look at this, when I look at these changes, it feels pretty good to me because it means one of the things I really like about Pathfinder 2 is that we have a whole other system that's very heavily produced, very well supported, well loved by the by the players and the GMs that, that play it a lot that is very different from a lot of the other RPGs we have which means that when you look at the tabletop RPG hobby overall we have this very wide spectrum of the kinds of games you want to play we have you know kind of if you you know if you cutting off the outer edges where things get really really weird in the middle row you have something with as much tactical and mechanical crunch as Pathfinder 2 has with very refined rule sets with very you know everything is well defined all the rules are well defined and then all the 
the way on the far right, you have something like Fate Accelerated, where you have this like, you know, 20 page book that is all about heavy concepts and dice rolls. And it's very, very story focused, very loose in its connection, a lot of GM arbitration required and everything. And then you have everything in between. And I would say certainly like fifth edition leans more towards the rule crunchy side, but it's definitely got a lot of GM arbitration, you know, it's situations where the DM determines how things are going to go in a certain way, which means we have a wide range of all of these different kinds of games that we like. And what I really like about it is that, you know, they're all pretty awesome. Like, you know, all these games are out there, well-supported, well-loved. There's groups that play them. There's a lot going on. So, you know, one of the things that I kind of pound the table about, and I know, I, I you know, I've gotten emails from people talking about my criticism of one game or the other. What was particularly interesting is one week where I had two emails that came in, one that said, please stop bashing Pathfinder 2 so much. And the other one said, please stop bashing fifth edition D&D so much. So I was like, well, I guess I'm in the right spot. I guess I'm generally well balanced. Maybe I was just grumpy period. Maybe I'm just a grumpier person. But one of the things I think I, I, you know, I probably don't say enough is none of these are bad games. These are all pretty awesome games. It's just which game better supports you as a GM and your players. And and that's an individual choice that's made. You get to decide which ones of these games do you think really fit you and what you want. And you can try them all. And I'm trying lots of different ones. And there's some I've tried where... I love it and my group doesn't. Cypher System. I love Cypher System. When I talked about the ones that I found to be the most GM-friendly systems, Cypher System jumps out to me as one of the, as for me, the most GM-friendly system. I love it. My players, not as crazy about it, right? They didn't really, didn't really have a great time with it. I had some players that were like, look, I played it for like, whatever, nine months and it never clicked with me. So it makes sense. I have played Pathfinder 2. It's a little too crunchy for me. It's a little too specific in the kinds of tactics and the kind of management that goes on. I want something where the action is, is usually a little bit broader in scope and bigger. I like one action systems instead of three action systems. I don't need to have all the intricacies of rules or the, the little nitpicky things. Does that mean I think Pathfinder 2 is bad? Not at all. I think it's fantastic. And obviously lots of people do. Lots of people love it. And I think that's fantastic. So lots of different things to try. Lots of things to try and steal from and bring back to your favorite game we will almost always have a preference i don't think i will ever spend time arguing about why the game that i prefer is better or worse than the game someone else prefers i'm not here to promote any one system over any other system i'm here to promote the rpg industry and the the rpg hobby because it is so important for all of us to get together with our friends to laugh to share stories it's critical to our lives and I think it's really fantastic. So that that to me is the uh, that to me is the real main point on this. So cool. I'm, when the Pathfinder 2 Core Remaster comes out, I'll almost certainly pick up the PDFs because I want to check them out and see how they go because it looks really cool. Fellow YouTuber Mac, Ma- MapCrow did a video just a day ago where he talked about building out a particular monster and building an adventure around that monster. He made this really cool, creepy monster that's like a, a big evil knight with a bunch of hands for heads. But he used Forge of Foes to design the mechanics for the monster and then he used Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master to do the actual design of the adventure. Talked very nicely about all of this. I was very happy happy to hear it some people linked it to me and said oh you should listen to this one and i did and it was really exciting to see someone else using the stuff that i've put out there so i want to thank map crow for 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 doing that video really really fun and really cool to see you can find a link to that video in the show notes so today i had for today's big topic one of the things i'm trying to do with the show these days is kind of have like a, a single big topic that we kind of dive into and dissect in the world of in in, in this world and today i wanted to talk about the idea of moving things forward. This concept of when and how to move the game forward comes from a larger topic about pacing in our RPGs. There's two quotes that I think are pretty relevant to this. One is in Monty Cook, Monty Cook of Monty Cook Games talk, says that understanding how pacing works in TTRPGs may be the most important skill that a GM can have. That really trying to understand how pacing works, how to move pacing, how to handle pacing is one of the most if not the most important trait that a GM can have. Another one was a quote from Kobold Guides to Game Mastering, I believe it was. And it was actually a friend of Wolfgang Bauer, I believe, who said that a lot of times playing a role-playing game is like a 15 minutes of excitement packed into a four-hour bag. And that kind of gets to this, like, you know, it can, sometimes the game can be kind of boring. If you have a lot of players and those players want to do a lot of stuff and you have a lot of things going on, the action can kind of lag a little bit. Four hours can actually be a long, a long time. So the idea of pacing overall is really, really important. This can include things like, 
like the the upward and downward beats and all the different kinds of literary beats that you find in Hamlet's Hit Points by Robin Laws. It includes generally how to deal with pacing, but there's really one aspect of pacing. And I actually had two patrons recently who asked basically the same question about pacing, which was when I'm in my game and I have some players that are having a good time or the story is there, but I feel like the story that the things are lagging, that I, I want to move things forward. The, the players are kind of okay with it, but they want to take more time with things. They want to do stuff, but really we want to move the game forward. What do I do about it? How do I handle that? So I thought it would be worth talking about this concept. And, and I'm not going to necessarily offer like the pure end all be all of solutions for this. It is a hard problem, which is why we are digging into it as deeply as we're going to dig into it. But hopefully we can kind of get our thoughts together about it, come up with some ideas, maybe have a few things that we can try in our game to see like, can it help move things forward? A lot of times when I'm thinking about this concept of moving things forward, I think about like in Japan on the subways, I've never been to Japan, but I've seen videos of it where during rush hour people are trying to pack themselves into a into a subway car and there's actual people with giant shields that are like pushing them in and stuffing them in and sometimes i feel like that in my DD game where you're like you have this you know the, the players are kind of moving along and they're doing stuff and they're like getting involved in the stores or they're talking to this favorite npc or they're getting involved in games at the bar and you're like you've got your big acrylic sheet you're like move forward come on let's go some of it i feel is like that we have to be the one that's kind of shoving the game forward and part of that means sometimes our players are not going to necessarily be happy about it because they, they were enjoying that thing they were doing they were enjoying their bit of downtime they wanted to run that game at the table and like we got to move things forward but part of the reason we want to move things forward is because they might be having a good time but other players may not be other players may be bored other players may be disconnected they may be off on their phones or doing something else or maybe they're just sitting there staring at the ceiling or falling asleep you don't really know so the one of the tricks with pacing is that it's different for different players and dealing with that is going to be a tricky spot so the real problem is that sometimes things slow down in our game that we, we can see it happening. We as GMs, we know things are slowing down. If we don't know that things are slowing down, well, that's kind of another problem, which is the players are bored, but we think things are going okay. That's not always great, but we got, kind of get this feeling of like have things happen, always be moving towards action. What's something the characters can do? Now, some of the players also know what's happening. You know, you have somewhere like all I want to do is swing a sword and hit it, hit it, hit a skeleton. And there's no skeletons to swing swords at when I'm wandering around in town. So you know that some of the players are into it. Some of the players are into what's going on and then the pacing isn't an issue for them. Sometimes it is an issue. Time is ticking. You have a limited resource. You have a limited time for the, for the game that you want to run. And even if you're running an ongoing series that's continuing, you still want to have stuff happen. You still want to move things forward. You still want to have things going on. Your cool conclusion, if you're running a one-shot game or even if you had an idea about, hey, I was going to have a big kind of big climactic fight at the end of a session, that time is getting, it's getting closer and closer. What are you going to do is like, you know, time, you thought this thing that was only going to take 45 minutes ends up taking an hour and a half or this thing that was only supposed to take 10 minutes is now taking 45 minutes. What are you going to do? How are you going to manage that? So that's a real issue. Why does this happen? Why, why is pacing a problem with this? And some of it is that some players are taking their time with their scenes. It's, it's honestly, it's really, really hard when you have a lot of players. If you have more than, if you have really more than four players, pacing is going to be a concern because those players want to have their time in the spotlight. They want to do things. They want to understand things. They want to dive into the game, but there are six of them, five of them or six of them. And when there's that many players, that amount of spotlight time is going to take up a lot of time in the game. The easiest thing to do to improve the pacing of the game is have fewer players. If you have four, that's really great. If you baseline your group at four, but you have a couple of people, that, you know, that can that can work too. I tend to have five or six players, right? I tend to have a larger number of players. But I can tell you, for those of you who have more than six players, you're in a you're in a rough spot. It is going to be really hard to keep that game exciting and interesting and moving forward when you have as many players as seven or more. Really, really hard to do. Six, six is my absolute limit. Decision paralysis often causes this problem. We put a lot of choices in front of the characters. The players have to make their individual choices, which is already hard. And for some people, it's just hard to make choices overall. You can see this with players who play like spellcasters and they take a lot of time on their turn to try to figure out exactly what spell they want to do. They're sort of maximizing and optimizing their options. They're kind of thinking things through. They run through hypothetical scenarios and then they change their minds. Some people, it's just harder to make decisions like that. And a lot of time, the people where it's harder to make decisions tend to pick classes that are harder to make decisions for. They don't pick a fighter where they just swing their sword every time. They pick the wizard who's got lots and lots of options. Decision paralysis is at an individual level is one thing, but then you get a group level where you say like, hey, everybody, where do you guys want to head to next? You have these five options. I had this happen in my game yesterday. We have these five options about where you want to go. They're like, they're hemming and hawing about, you know, 
three want to go one way, two want to go another. They kind of talk about it. Then they remember that with some other subquests that they want to go on. That sort of analysis paralysis can be really hard. And the more people that are involved, the harder it's going to become right? It's not even just one person. Then another one is sort of the constantly checking everything for every clue, every treasure, every trap, every secret door that goes on. The nice thing is there's a relatively easy solution for this that we'll get into. But sometimes when they're exploring an area, they want to explore everything. They want to go to every nook and cranny of the dungeon. They want to check every nook and cranny of every chamber that they go to. They want to roll checks on everything. And that can take a long time. Luckily, that's not that that's a little bit easier to deal with. Combat can take a really long time. Again, six players, six characters, higher level. They have lots of different options. The monsters have to get harder to account for that. So battles can take, you know, an hour, hour and a half, depending on what kind of system you're running. It can take a long time for for battles. Then there's a vicious cycle. This one I don't think is really as well recognized, which is the vicious cycle of losing attention. That what happens, especially in online games, and it's I think this is a bigger plague for online games than it is for in-person games, but I, it can happen in in-person games too. And what happens is that things slow down a little bit and then some players disconnect. They pick up their phone, they go play, you know, a video game, like on a little handheld system. They just, they get distracted with other things, right? Maybe they even are distracted with things that are in the game. Like, oh, I'm going to go look at what my next subclass is, or I'm going to go optimize what items I've got. You pick which items I'm going to equip. So they might even be connected to their own character, but they're losing track of the story. And then suddenly they get drawn back into the story, but they've lost track of what's happened. So now you have to freshen them up on what just happened. And that takes time. And then while you're doing that, other people are getting disconnected. So it creates this vicious cycle where people, things get slow, so people disconnect. And then because people are disconnected, it gets slower because you have to bring them back in again. That's, it's really hard to handle. The nice part is that vicious cycle reverses if you keep pacing going. If you can keep engaging people before they fully disconnected, then you can bring them back in and then it's easier for them to reconnect to what's going on. The other one is being very quick and good about giving giving people the information they need in order to reconnect quickly. That That's something that can work. Then the other one is like a lot of times if you're playing a published adventure and the published adventure has lots of material in it and you feel like you have to run all that material, but it's really kind of boring. You know it's boring. They know it's boring, but you're going through it anyway because the adventure has it. I see this most often with organized play adventures where I see GMs that feel like they have to run everything that's in an organized play adventure and then they have to cut off the end of the adventure. That's probably my biggest pet peeve with organized play adventures is when DMs will run what I call the boring middle, right? Oh, we're going to run a big skill challenge in order to cross this muddy wasteland to get to the boss. But now we don't have time to run the boss fight. So we're just going to call it right here. That drives me bananas. All right. So we've got kind of some ideas about what some of the issues are with pacing, but what are some of the solutions? What are some of the things that we can do to help with this? So for combat, let's start with combat. Combat, there's some easy, specific things that we can do. One, lower the monster hit points. Think about those dials of monster difficulty. The dials of monster difficulty are the number of monsters, the hit points of the monsters, the amount of damage they do, and the number of attacks they have. If you need to speed up the pacing of a battle, particularly after the battle has crossed over the point where the characters clearly have the upper hand and they're having a good time, turn that dial. Turn the hit point dial. It means the monsters can fall over a little bit faster than they would normally. That increases the pacing. You've already made the exciting, you've hit the exciting peak of the battle, and now it's the cleanup. Don't make the cleanup last two more rounds just because the characters missed a couple of times and now the, the creature has eight hit points left and they're only doing five damage. That is the most common way to tweak the dials. And the one that I think that the fewest people have problems with is turning the hit point dial down in order to end a battle early. It's really easy to do. You can do it completely behind the screen. I've you're not, you know, very rarely are you going to have players who even notice it's happening. And if they do, they're probably recognizing like, yeah, we want to end this battle too. That to me is far better than saying we're going to call the battle right here which again, I've heard many organized play DMs, instead of just breaking characters saying, let's call the battle, let them do their final blows, just make them final blows. Sometimes though, if a battle is going long or you know it's going to go long, you have a lot of players, they're high level, what you can do is lower the hit points, but increase the damage. Make them more what they call glass cannony, right? Glass cannon is the idea that they do lots of damage, but they shatter very easily. So you can lower the hit points, but increase the damage. Drop an extra D6 damage or 2D6 damage on their attacks, but lower their hit points. That way the threat is still there. These guys are still really dangerous. You're taking a lot of stuff. You're taking a lot of damage. There's a lot of risk. You get really scared. Damage scares players. When players, when characters get hit with lots of damage, that freaks them out but if you can drop them quickly like oh thank god we got rid of that guy he was doing like 96 damage to me so that's definitely one an area where pacing can really fall down is chasing enemies that run away so one of the problems of having monsters flee which is it would seem to be a good way to have a battle end early is the monsters run away is players want to chase them 
And now you have this other pacing thing where the, the monster's trying to get away, the, the characters are chasing them, and it just goes on and on and on. So one way is to make it very clear. The monsters are going to flee and you're not going to be able to keep up. You're, you're, you're taking away some agency, but you're doing it really quickly and you're doing it for a good reason, which is just don't chase them. The alternative is instead of chasing, they surrender. Just don't get into one of these weird ass, we're going to torture the kobold for information things. That's a good thing to handle in your session zero. And make it easy for them to rehabilitate or say like, you know, just get out of here, but we won't ever want to see you again. And don't make them pay for that. If the players make the choice of mercy, don't pay back mercy by having those monsters come back. And then they're like, I guess we should have tortured that kobold to death. In my opinion, that's not a good way for the game to go. I don't like it. I'm not going to have it in my games. So when a kobold says, please, I'll tell you my information, just let me go. And they go, they actually go. I think the only time I went against that was when it was a vampire kobold and they really should just kill the vampire. And instead they got information and the vampire kobold came back. So even in my circumstance, I still from time to time will change how that goes. But be careful with monsters who run away because a lot of times your players are going to chase those monsters. So make sure they either have a clear way to get away where the monster, where the characters aren't going to chase them down or choose something else. And I've already talked about don't do the call it right here. For exploration, we're kind of covering these in sort of the easiest to deal with to the hardest to deal with. When I talked about like the problem of players who really want to explore every single chamber in a dungeon and then for every chamber want to explore every nook and cranny. And this is a real one, real easy, there's an easy, easy solution. I don't know if anything is truly easy, but here's one that I find works really well that a lot of GMs don't do which is break character and tell them they've explored everything you see this in like dialogue trees in video games where like this character has told you everything they're going to tell you this you have you have thoroughly searched this room and you are convinced that there are no secret doors that you've discovered all the treasure everything's here and you can even jump ahead of them doing the search right if after they've cleared out a room you say a quick cursory search of the room a, a, a good thorough search of the room tells you there is nothing else here to find other than what you have found and then what are they going to do say oh i keep searching you like, same thing right like the players are not going to say, well, I search and I search and I search and I search. Like, you're like, no, I'm serious. You know, out of character, there's nothing else here for you to find. And you can do the same thing with the whole dungeon that once they fought the final boss, one of the things you could do is say, after destroying the final boss and going through the rest of the dungeon, you find the following treasure or you found the following information. You found, And then just abstract the rest of the exploration of a dungeon in order to move things forward. Once they've hit that key conclusion, once you think that the pacing in the game says, let's time to move on, let's not worry about exploring the whole rest of the dungeon, that you can just tell them what they what the characters discovered while they explored the rest of the dungeon very very quickly and get on instead of going room to room to room unless you really feel like going room to room to room is interesting and is exciting and is the big part of the game and is what you want the players to focus their time on now it does mean that like if you're one of the folks that worries about attrition that worries about characters aren't doing too much stuff fully rested but if it's after a boss fight just skip the rest. I wouldn't worry too much about saying like, well, I need to let them go through the rest of the dungeon so they'll hit traps, which lowers their hit points so it's a little harder. It's not worth sacrificing the pacing of the game in order to have them have fewer hit points at the end of something. Just tell them. This this concept of just tell them when they've done something that you know tell don't show instead of going through an entire dungeon just tell them what they found instead of making them run a bunch of perception checks and a bunch of investigation checks just tell them what they find not all the time again we're talking about doing this when the feeling of pacing is starting to lag that when you think you need to move stuff forward that is the time to just cut to the chase you found everything in here let's move on so what about other forms of decision paralysis? This is the really big problem. You have certain players that spend a lot of time in the decisions that they're figuring out, or as a group, they all have trouble figuring things out. And it can be really tough. One of them is to make sure that you as the GM help facilitate that conversation. And you can do so by really clarifying what the options are in front of them. So you can always leave things for if they come up with other ones, you can drop them in. But then you might need to say like, look, that seven is probably too many. You have a feeling that these three options really aren't viable, right? Right now but these are the four options that are really viable these are the ones that you're going to want to follow you can take a bit of a heavier hand with this as long as you're offering meaningful and relevant choices anyway if you're giving them four choices that are all big ones that gives them a good direction of what they want to do clarifying those options writing them down if you're playing in an online game you can actually like paste them into whatever your text window is so all of the players can look at what the options are they can read them they can think about them while the other players are doing the same thing but it's very clear what they are it's very clear why they would do those 
the options are clear. The goals are clear. Everything is well understood. You've helped refine it as the facilitator for this discussion. That gives them a better chance to, to, to follow through. If you kind of sit back and say things like, well, where do you want to go now? And then you rely on them to decide like, well, what were our options? And then there's, you're going to eat up a lot of conversation time. That pacing is going to drop really low. It's going to be, it's going to take a long time. You can skip, unless you really think that that is interesting and, and that the players think that's interesting. You can condense that way down by being the facilitating. As you sit there in this campsite, thinking about where you're going to go ahead, the following four options really come become clear to you. You can go to the sewers and figure out why people are going missing in the sewers. You can go to the old cemetery and figure out why dead are coming back to life in the old cemetery. You can investigate the strange obelisk in the demon's bowl, or you can investigate the other strange obelisk at the the, the land of the the land of gray spires, right? And like, oh, okay. You know, we know what we need to do. We know where we need to go. These are our four choices. What do we want to do? That really helps. A clarifying really helps. Make sure the players have all of the info they need. Do they have everything that they need in order to make those choices? Do they know why they're going there? How it ties to their larger quest line? What they need to accomplish there? Make sure all that's really clear to them so that they can make those choices. Then eventually you can stop and say, instead of like, let them converse and talk about why they pick one over the other. But then at some point stop and say, just let's do a cursory vote and see where people stand and go through the players, particularly starting with your quiet players and ask them, where do you think, where do, where would you want to go of these options and keep track? And you can do even sort of rank choice of like pick a couple and then see of those couple, like which ones tend to correlate more with another. Then once you've come up and you say, yeah, it looks like you guys all want to go to the sewers to see why people have gone missing in the sewers. Then you can say, is everybody okay with that? Is everybody at least you know, can everybody live with that result? Because sometimes you might make a choice, particularly if it's a choice that you cannot come back from, where one of the players is like, I really don't want that. You know, I, I really don't want that. And then you might need to go back and, and try to figure out how you can come to an agreement that everybody can agree to and say, yeah, maybe it's not my ideal, but I'm fine with it. That's really what you're aiming for. It's not necessarily that every player is perfectly happy with the choice, but that every player is okay with the choice. You don't want to have it where one player is just man, I did not want to do that at all. And that was the choice we made. And now I'm feeling disconnected from the game. I don't like what's going on. You want to bring that back in and stop and say, then, then re-scope the conversation to try to find a way that everybody can come to an agreement that is at least palatable to them. The independent role-playing game Shadow Dark RPG actually has a couple of interesting ways to handle pacing and exploration. How do you keep things moving forward? It's actually kind of three different things that Shadow Dark brings to the table in this that I think are all useful and are useful in other RPGs as well if you can figure out exactly how to drop them in there. One is that you're always on initiative, which means you're always going from player to player to player. Even if you're doing scenes in towns, conversation scenes, you're still going around. That's making sure that everyone is staying involved. And it's also making sure that no one person has too much of the spotlight time. That's a really good way to to keep pacing going when you have some players that are taking up more time than others with spotlight time. Another way for exploration that Shadow Dark handles it is that things like torches, which are very important to keep away the danger of the dark, are timed in game and timed in the world. So you have like a stopwatch or a clock that says you have 60 minutes on this torch. When the torch runs out, this thing goes. Now you can take the clock concept from Blades in the Dark and the Powered by the Apocalypse games where like certain things are scaling up. You can actually use a real game clock to show how things are scaling up in the world that things that they want to do and things that they need to be able to accomplish the time is ticking and it's ticking in real world time which means the players need to be moving forward a little bit faster if they want things to go and again another one from shadow dark rpg is the idea of using random encounters the little trick with random encounters they work well for shadow dark because shadow dark encounters can be very very quick and the danger is always kind of press you know, always kind of there adding random encounters as a way to push pacing isn't necessarily ideal for like a game like 5e because those battles are now going to take extra time too you've actually made things longer instead of shorter but random encounters can be one of the ways that you can kind of keep the pressure moving forward to try to keep characters going in a particular direction so those are those are kind of the big things that I've been thinking about, about when it comes to how you can help keep the pacing of the game moving forward, how you can move things forward. If you have other ideas, if you have cer certain circumstances, certain situations where you felt like the game has been lagging and you have found good solutions to move things forward, please let me know. Put it in comments. Send me an email. Let me know what you have found because I'm very curious to hear other ways to solve what I consider to be a pretty 
big, hard problem when running tabletop role-playing games. Let's do some Patreon questions. So every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we have a monthly Q&A. I answer every TTRPG-related question asked on that Q&A post. Some of them I take and I bring here to the show, and other ones become larger segments, like the whole concept of pacing and moving it forward is an idea that has come from a couple of different patrons of Sly Flourish for discussion. So let's take a look at our current questions. Matthew D says, how do you balance rewarding creativity of players that might want to try fun stuff while not giving too much spotlight to them? An example might be making a check to swing from a chandelier and land on an enemy, plunging a sword into them. Inversely, I find it easy to accidentally give less time to players whose turn is very succinct. I want to make sure I'm giving extra everyone the same spotlight time and not giving away extra actions by mistake. So yeah, this is a concept I really like. I've talked about my an idea that I bring, which is called cinematic advantage. The idea is that characters can use sort of in-world, in-game things to get an advantage in combat. An example would be like swinging from a chandelier to drop on. You could roll an acrobatics check. If you succeed, you get advantage on your first hit. It is a very straightforward way to kind of add a little bit of cinematic flair to an encounter that kind of brings players into the world itself using the object, these interactive objects that are going on there and things like that. But that question of, well, what if you have some players that are grabbing onto these ideas and then other players that are not, are you over... Are you putting too much of a spotlight on some players and too less of a spotlight on the other? So there's a couple of things you can do. One is you you don't have to worry about it quite so much. And it doesn't need to be absolutely perfect, symmetrical spotlight time on all of the players all of the time. Sometimes you're going to have players who get more of a spotlight. Sometimes you're going to have players who have less of a spotlight. Sometimes neither group is bothered by this, that the person is getting more spot is happy to do it. The other players are happy for that player to have more of the spotlight. Sometimes it doesn't really bother people. It's really when you feel like some players are getting disconnected. They really don't. If they Certainly if they come to you and say, wow, I don't feel like I get a lot of action in this. That's not good. And if you feel like you want to see more action from this. And the key to that is to always kind of be looking at all of the characters and all the players that you have and saying, who have I not heard from yet? And what can I give them? What kind of situation can I give them? So one of the things is while you have one player who might be really good about using the, inter- using the area around them to kind of do cool things, you have another player who doesn't, you can offer options to them and say, hey, you notice, and you kind of look at their character, you notice that there is this great big tree, big crack in the tree. You're pretty sure if you hit that tree, you could get it to collapse and maybe even crush a couple of the skeletons that you're fighting. So you can kind of offer an option. They go, oh, that sounds good. They might also say, nah, I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to continue to attack. So if you find that there are certain players who aren't taking that that option of having the spotlight on them for some kind of cool in-world cinematic option, you can look at them and offer one. Try to you know, come up with one yourself, bring it to them. And you don't, again, don't, you don't have to hide things. You don't have to say like, you notice there's a great big tree there. And the guy's like, all right, I don't care. I'm going to keep attacking, right? You could say there's a big tree with a big crack on it that happens to be lined up perfectly to land on two of the skeletons. Go ahead and tell them, give them the, give them that option and let them know that they can do it. You don't want to always make that option so good that they never do their normal attacks. Like they want to still use their character abilities, but sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, that sounds really cool. Let's try that. So keep an eye on the, it's always important to keep an eye on the players who you haven't heard from in a while. Keep that list, look down that list. Think about if you haven't seen them. If there's a particular player like, yeah, I really don't hear from that often. Try like write down, like make it a focus to ask them stuff a lot. Right. And, and then try to kind of speed things up with, with another player. But that idea, the other one is sometimes people don't think of this as like part of the game. They're like, well, my character has these actions they can do. They have these options that they can do. They don't really have anything else that they can do. And I know that that other player over there is swinging from the chandelier, but that's just a bunch of kind of like role-playing BS. That's not really what the game is. And instead you can say, no, cinematic advantage is a component of the game. It is an action you can take that you can look around, you can see an object, you can interact with that object. You make a particular skill check and you and the GM negotiate it. If you succeed on it, you get advantage on your first hit. If you fail at it, there's some minor disadvantage that occurs, but it's usually in your favor because usually the thing you're trying to do is something you're particularly good at that that can be a component of the game it can be a mechanic that's sitting there that sort of all the players have this is sort of like a dungeon world move or a powered by the apocalypse move there's a general table move that says interact with the object get advantage on your first hit if you fail this other thing might occur don't make the detriment of failure worse than the advantage of success if you're oftentimes you're letting them make a free sort of as part of their move action they can make like an acrobatics check to do something if they fail just have them kind of fall on their you know fall and then they can use their move to get up or the next attack against them has advantage but don't make it so bad that like 
every monster gets advantage on attacks on them for an entire round when all they want to do is get advantage on one attack or they'll never do it. They'll look at the mechanics and be like, yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't worthwhile. I got my ass kicked all because I wanted to do one thing. So you want to be a little careful with that, but hopefully that gives you an idea about how you can keep that spotlight on players and offer the options to the players who aren't taking those cinematic opportunities to give them that option to do so. Cause it's really a lot of fun. Frigid says I'm a new DM. Welcome to the hobby. And I'm about to run my first campaign. That is awesome. My players are about to go on a nautical adventure. What advice, do you have that would help make the adventure come to life on the high seas as a great first of all welcome it's so great that you're taking up the dm mantle and that you're running games for your friends that's a really big deal and i'm very happy to hear about it my first recommendation would be to pick up ghost of salt marsh if you can the ghost of salt marsh book has really really excellent stuff for running games on the high seas boat statistics uh, combat at sea lots of random encounters on the high seas layer little interesting nautical layers that you could find there's a lot of great beyond the adventures that are in ghost of salt marsh which are really really great adventures except for one all the adventures in there are really good except for isle of the abbey which i was not a fan of but other people ran and they liked it so i don't know and there's parts of isle of the abbey you could take and move around it's a really really good book and it's flexible in how you use it so i would definitely recommend ghost of salt marsh it is really a good product to help you handle this but there's some other things you could do one is make their boat their home base i think it's really really fun for players to be able to customize their own ship that make it their ship not just the ship they're riding on they could have a captain they could have a crew that's running the ship for them but it should be it should feel like their ship this is their home like find a way for them to kind of own the ship and let them customize it. Let them customize their own cabins. Talk about, ask them what their cabins are like. How do they decorate their cabins? And then also give them options to upgrade the ship that they can put better cannons on there. They can put better arbalists on there. They can put, you know, all kinds of different sort of equipment on there. And again, Ghost of Saltmarsh has a bunch of like high fantasy upgrades that you can make for your ship for higher level games where you want to spend a lot of money and you have ghost sails and all kinds of things. So I think there's a lot of ways that you can expand that. But I would, I would take the ship, make that their home base that they can travel on, and then let them expand that and then of course you can do aisle hopping adventures are always a lot of fun there's just a lot of things you can do with a nautical adventure it's a really good model the idea of nautical adventures i think are a really good model for for for, for traditional fantasy rpgs joaquin c says i am planning a 5e sci-fi game my main rule books will, will be ultra modern with some star find some I believe that's Starfinder. Starfinder and Carbon 2185. But do you have any other sci-fi fantasy game systems where I can pick up rules, specifically for cyber implants and psionics? Do you think pick, pick and mixing rules for several games is a good idea, or would you stick to a single system? I cannot recommend Esper Genesis enough. So Esper Genesis is a 5e system made by my friend, Rich Leska Flair. It's available on DriveThruRPG. You can find a link to pick up Esper Genesis on DriveThruRPG. There's a whole ton of different resources here it is a very rich very thick science fiction based rpg very like mass effect a lot of star wars a lot of mass effect ideas in here i believe it does have cybernetic implants and that kind of things i don't know specifically i, I can't remember specifically you can pick up the core manual but there's also basic rules and the character sheet which you can pick up for free so there's a fair bit of material that you can look in to see if it's got what you what you want the master technician's guide is sort of a gm guide and what's cool is it's completely 5e compatible so if you're playing a 5e game you can very easily reskin monsters from existing 5e products. You can use 5e adventures. You can use all sorts of other 5e stuff and you can make it. It's all available in PDF off of DriveThruRPG. So I would definitely take a look at Esper Genesis. It is a, it is a really cool 5e based science fiction system that I think serves very well. Flibberly Gibbet says, what recommendations do you have for RPGs that emphasize theater of the mind? I am working on a list of options for our 5e group and trying to try and would like to add some tactics, light, imagination, heavy options. Yeah, so there's some good ones. Fate, I think, has my favorite theater of the mind style of combat, which they, they use zones for their movement and their combat. You can think of a zone as like a big area. You can basically move, take your move to go from one zone to another. The zone concept is also one that Robert Schwab has picked up for Shadow of the Weird Wizard. They put it in a supplement for Shadow of the Demon Lord has zone-based combat. I like zone-based combat more than I like the abstract distance-based combat because zones are really clear. It's like you can hit everything in a zone. You can move one zone away. A combat might be three zones. It doesn't matter where you are. You know what the zones are and 
you know where they go. It's almost like imagining that instead of having a five foot square, you have a 30 foot square and you only have like three or four of these squares or maybe you only have one of these squares, but like a room might only take up one square and a big chamber might be two squares, right? And, and a really large area might be three squares. And they might be separated out and you can define your zones clearly with aspects. This is again from fate. It's really clear what can operate in there. It's really clear what, how many creatures can be hit in what particular zone. So I really like zone based combat as my favorite kind of version of theater of the mind. But a lot of people also like the more abstract distance of like close and near and far shadow dark has this where you have close near and far, and then you have double near 13th age also uses that idea of like close near and far 13th age was really where I got used to running theater of the mind. And I thought that really worked. The only thing there is like, as people are moving from like close and near and far, their distance from other things becomes weird because it's like, well, am I still near that? Or now am I far from that? And something might be near to one person and far from somebody else. That's why zones are usually a little bit easier, a little bit clear. Like you're all by the giant statue, right? The giant Tarasque statue, that's a zone. The pillar, the skeletal pillars, that's a zone. And so that way you could say like, yeah, you can hit anything inside the, any four car- any four creatures inside the skeletal pillars can be hit by your thing or whatever. So fate is really good. 13th age is really good. Shadow of the Weird Wizard will be good when it comes out. Numenera also uses abstract distances, so you could take a look at theirs. So there's lots of systems. In fact, a lot of fantasy systems, and Shadow Dark RPG, of course, a lot of systems are leaning that direction. Because I think a lot of the creators of these systems like abstract distances more than they like fixed distances. So we're certainly seeing it. I think MCDM's RPG is going to be using fixed distance. Fifth edition, of course, uses five foot squares, but you can use theater of the mind pretty easily. Pathfinder is definitely designed to be run on a grid with squares. So there's a, a wide range, but yeah, there's a bunch of different systems that use theater of the mind. And I think that they're all worth it. So that, that those are the ones I would recommend. Shadow Dark, I would, rend, I would recommend Fate. I would recommend 13th Age. And when it comes out, Shadow of the Weird Wizard. And you can take a look at Cypher System as well. Bram B says, I am a year into my mythic odyssey of Theros campaign. It has been going pretty well. However, I feel the wow factor of mythological monsters, divine conspiracies, and supernatural boons has become less exciting over time. The heroes are about to enter the underworld, collecting some MacGuffin. But after that, they have about three in, in-game weeks of time left before a blood moon begins and the and returns... And returns of the chaotic titans. Windwalk has made travel arbitrary, which I don't mind, but I'm not sure how to f- both fill these weeks and make them exciting. How do you spice up a long-running campaigns, and how do you make in-game time pass without having the players lose agency? So I think for your specific circumstance, one of the things that I really like is that when characters travel the planes, if they go to the realm of the dead and then come back again, the under- if they go to the underworld and back again, there's nothing to say that time operates the same way in these planes. That you could have somebody that jumps to a plane and comes back and three weeks have passed three years 30 years 300 years have passed that as soon as you start traveling between dimensions between planes time can do all kinds of stuff so take a look at like the movie inception and the way that dreamscapes stack and it gets seven times longer every layer of the dream that you go down until when you go to the bottom layer 96 years passes in 10 minutes so there's lots of kind of fun ways that you can mess with time when the characters are jumping in and out of locations the other one is when you have the opportunity instead of declaring a specific time that something is going to take make it vague and and instead put signs that it's going to occur this works really well for like a mythic odyssey of theros game because you can say that there are certain signs that are going to occur and when this sign occurs you know that you only have a day right that your, your time is really tight and that way you don't have like hey you've got three weeks and you just do whatever you want. Instead, you could say like, well, you don't know how long it's going to be till this event happens, but when this sign occurs, it does. And then you can turn that dial. You want to move up the pacing. You don't want it. You want to skip those three weeks. Players are bored. You're bored. You want to just go there. You can just say, and that night the blood moon comes out and you're like, oh man, it's time to go. Right. So that way you have some options there and you could do that. Like with, with tomb of annihilation is sort of this way that you don't want to define how long it's going to take for these events to occur. And instead you say, you're getting more signs that it's going to occur faster than it was before that way you have sort of a dial on the urgency of the event and you can make it not urgent when the players need a little bit of a break and they want to go explore stuff or if you want to increase the urgency you can turn the dial the other way and now the urgency goes up quite a bit i think that idea that to me the important bit is not so much whether or not you skip forward or you don't but whether you have control over how fast or slow you want to turn that dial so Again, it's that matter of pacing. Some of your players might be bored and some of your players might not be bored. So I think having that option of being able to bring the event closer when it's time, you want to leave yourself some, some, some time in that. 
Peter S. says, what are your experiences running two consecutive campaigns in the same setting? Do players dislike restarting at first level after experiencing the high level adventures in the same world? First thing I would be changing, first thing I would be changing the area of the world, of course. Do you have any other tips? So uh, sometimes players are like, yeah, I really I wanted to continue to explore this, this world with my existing high level characters. But a lot of times it's like that that desire is actually more interesting than the implementation. So kind of saying you can always do the waffly like someday we may come back to these characters. But as far as running a different campaign in the same setting, you want the campaign goal to be very different. So an example is there is a huge difference between Storm King's Thunder, which takes over like the entire Sword Coast and Waterdeep Dragon Heist, which only occurs in the city of Waterdeep. They're both in the Forgotten Realms. They all of the gods are kind of the same, but the focus, the theme the the drive of that adventure the 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 elevator pitch of that adventure are very very different and then going from waterdeep dragon heist to descent into avernus also very different that you you know even though there's some relations that the theme of the adventure can change significantly even if the setting doesn't change even if you take the tyranny of dragon campaign which is all about Tiamat's rise and the cult of the dragon kind of taking over the Sword Coast and then went right into Storm King's Thunder, which also is exploring the Sword Coast. The themes are very different. The idea of the dragons rising and now that the dragons are gone, there's this vacuum and that the giants are starting to rise up. But actually, it's a manipulation of a dragon who was kind of broken by the first part. You can still have these different adventures. I also think it's a really good opportunity for players to switch the character they want to play. So as much as a character... As much as a player likes to watch a character grow, they also like to try other characters out. So I think you probably find less of a concern for players who like want to watch their characters keep growing as they do like wanting to start a new character because it's an opportunity for them to try something completely new. So it depends. But again, it's the kind of conversation you can have with your player too. Do you want to keep going? I had it where like, I think we hit 18th level and I was like, you guys want to go to 20th? And I'm like, nah, we're done. I was like, oh, okay. And so we ended at 18th level. They were, they kind of got everything they wanted and they wanted to try something new. So that, so that really worked. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. You can get a free Adventure Generator PDF for signing up and you get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to a monthly Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, and a whole lot more. Or you can pick up any of my books on the Sly Flourish bookstore, including including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, or the Lazy DMs Companion. Links for that are all in the show notes. Thank you so much. Have a great day, and get out there and play an RPG.